I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And this is just a quick disclaimer that, unfortunately, the the audio in this episode is a little funky. Not for once because of our recording setup, though. No, just because of Megan's own negligence. Yep. Uh, we, we lost my half of the audio. Because uh, someone doesn't believe in backups. Even though she was a teacher for however many years, in which she told students about backing things up on thumb drives, on Gmail. She doesn't believe in it herself. I trusted Audacity's temp files, and I learned a valuable lesson. Anyway, the point being is we, we got my audio from his audio, and it's it's all perfectly audible and stuff. It just kind of sounds like I'm yelling at you about Dorian Gray from the other side of the room. But it's still, it's good. And it's a good episode. There's some good jokes in it, and we love you. If you loved them, you would have backed up your audio. Harsh. Harsh but fair, I suppose. So enjoy the episode. You can say you're sorry. I am sorry. Are you sorry? I'm sorry! You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors. Fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. that splices in the jokes afterwards i'm megan i'm rj and today we are taking a second look at a popular oh no lit class alum oscar wilde that ends with an e yes you gotta pronounce it oscar what wilde yeah wilde oh it's like they pronounce the h in herb 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 yeah oscar herb wilde we're gonna be looking at the picture of dorian gray A.K.A. the most extra, overly dramatic, gay novel of our times. Now, what's weird about it is it's not a picture at all. No, it's true. It's a, it's a painting. Yeah. It's a por- portraiture. How queer. How queer indeed. So, if you want to hear the sort of general outline of Oscar Wilde's life and times, you can refer back to uh, episode 11, Go Make Your Blue China Proud, which we cover his general bio and the play the importance of being earnest but i'm assuming rj has got some more specifics for us before we launch into a picture of dorian gray which is probably more of his his well-known i would say that's oscar wilde's most well-known work we did the importance of being earnest because we had a guest we had our, our friend scott as a guest host and he wanted to do that one because he likes plays <laughs> But now we're doing we're doing the big one. We're doing the one that everybody knows when they think of Oscar Wilde. Apart from him just like lounging picturesquely and saying pithy things. Megan doesn't listen to our episodes. What do you mean? Because we covered clearly in episode eleven. He hit his peak career wise with the importance of being earnest. Well, no, I I didn't say whether or not he hit his peak. I said he is much more well known now. For the, the picture of Dorian Gray than he is for the importance of being earnest. It's not his peak. I didn't ever say it was his peak. I said he's probably more known for this. I may not listen to our past episodes. You don't listen to me as we're recording. The peak means the best. It's the summit. Climax. Pinnacle. That, that may have been when he was most popular, but that's not... Well, I, I feel like when you say Oscar Wilde, people are going to think of the picture of Dorian Gray before they think of the importance of being earnest. Wrong. No, I, I'm... Pretty sure I'm right, but fine, whatever. 
I want again. Go, go off, I guess. Yeah. Before we get into the picture of Dorian Gray, is this one that you had to read in school? Because we usually bring this up at this point. No. No. I did read it in either freshman or sophomore year. We had just like a good few weeks of Oscar Wilde because our professor loved him a lot. And she talked about, I don't think I brought this up on episode 11, because she talked about how you know, when he was in prison and how much that, like, wrecked him and stuff. And a kid in the class was like, yeah, but, like, he was gay, right? So he was probably getting a lot of butt sex in prison, so he was probably having a good time. And she looked at him like she wanted to set him on fire with her mind. Don't drop the soap. I'm pretty sure it was assigned to me at some point in grad school. Didn't read it. <laughs> Did you read anything in grad school? Yeah, something. Something. Yeah. You must have. I must have. Just, you know, logically speaking. Well, anyway, RJ, I know that we've gone over his general biography, but what, what new things do you have to tell us about Oscar the Wild Man? Wild. This time around. Is that what I called him? That's not what I called him. No, that's what I just called him. No. Ah, yes. Our old friend, Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Willis Wild, born October 16th, 1854, died November 30th. 1900. Ozzy being the man who proudly proclaimed, I find it harder and harder every day to live up to my blue china. I think that's one of the truths of life that everyone can refer to. I know them blue china feels. So today we're specifically focusing on the picture of Dorian Gray, which was initially published in a serial format in 1890. So I'll talk about Ozzy's life from around that time. If you want to hear specifics of Ozzy's life, go back and listen to our episode on the importance of being Ernest P. Worrell and Hemingway. That thing that I said. Yeah, well, I told you I didn't need to say it. I said it. Episode 11, I'm told. Just to put this into context, Ozzy was 36 when The Picture of Dorian Gray was published. By this time in his life, he was a well-established poet, critic, and journalist. He was also well-known for his blue china ways. Some people loved him, while a lot of people detested him. It is vital to note, though, the importance of being earnest, which marked the height of Ozzy's literary stardom, hit the stages as a play in 1894, four years after the picture of Dorian Gray. Additionally, the whole episode of Ozzy bun-bearing along with Lord Alfred Douglas, son of the Marquis of Queensbury, and, about yeah, <laughs> and the litigation that followed was still about five years off. In short, to jog some memories, this was when Ozzy slept with an aristocratic boy, much younger than him, and the dad, who was an upper-class dickbag and also a boxer, said of Ozzy being a sodomite, quote, I do not say that you are it, but you look it and pose as it, which is just as bad. And if I catch you with my son again in any public restaurant, I will thrash you. To which Wilde responded, quote, I don't know what the Queensberry rules are, but the Oscar Wilde rule is to shoot on sight. Nice. I don't think you had that uh, before. That's a good one. Didn't his son also grow up to be, the guy's son that he did the dalliance with, grow up to be like a Nazi sympathizer or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Happens. Good good choices, Oscar, and your, your choice of boys to do a sex on. So all the court battles, imprisonment, and all that joyous stuff was still well into the future for Ozzy, who sat down and wrote a picture of Dorian Gray, even though his reputation preceded him at this point in time. Basically, when he wrote this, he was already a social outsider. This book did not help. I can't imagine why. Ozzy was certainly not a heterosexual male. Bad thing to not be in Victorian England. He was also Irish, 
which was not exactly always a positive thing to be in the world at the time. Case in point, when he came to visit America, particularly Boston, an editor wrote of Wilde in a work titled Unmanly Manhood that Wilde is a writer, quote, whose only distinction is that he has written a thin volume of very mediocre verse. Harsh. The Washington Post published an image of the Wild Men of Borneo, who were dwarf brothers in P.T. Barnum's original freak show, next to a published image of Ozzy and asked Boyle, how far is it from this to this? You're shitting me. Truly inspired stuff. Wow. Yeah. This is me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't remember any of the other lyrics. Yeah, I don't. I just remember sitting there the whole time thinking about how P.T. Barnum was actually a bastard. I was thinking how good looking he was. What a fox. The National Republican said in an article about Ozzy that they needed to, quote, explain a few items as to the animal's pedigree. Okay. Oh, he's Irish. Oh, and if you thought those were bad, at different times in his career before writing Dorian Gray, Wilde was caricatured as a monkey, a blackface performer, and a minstrel performer. Why? Well, people in Boston were racist. Yeah. Particularly yeah. towards Irish people and maybe gay people. I guess that wouldn't be a race. Nah, um, that would be... Prejudice. Yeah. Homophobic. There's a word. But why, like, depicting him as, like, a minstrel performer? That's so random. I believe, uh, you know, there's people who are wasp and then everything else. Mm, Jeezy crazy. So, yeah, dude was not exactly beloved in all circles. And he was acutely aware of all this and in some way seemed to thrive on it. Or at least that was the outward persona that he put on. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta turn that haterade into fuel to keep moving forward. So, what is Ozzy to do? Well, he decided to turn to and be inspired by another outsider. So we turn to Benjamin Disraeli. Benji. Benji was born December 21, 1804 and died April 19th, 1881. He was a man born in the middle of London. A true Englishman. I don't like that Ozzy over there. I like that gross Irishman. Now, for those of you who don't know much about old Benjamin Disraeli, he served two separate stints as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, totaling... thought his name sounded familiar. ...totaling about six and a half years of his life. So, what does this dude, who sounds like the definition of power and insiderness in the late 19th century of England, have to do with Aussie and outsiders? Well, Benji was actually an outsider himself. There was something about him that marked him as different, and thus he faced never-ending ridicule throughout his life. Something he could not change. Benji, as you might have guessed by his last name, was Jewish. Dun, dun, dun. In fact, he's still the only Jewish prime minister the UK has ever had. I didn't even know they had a Jewish prime minister yeah. at all. There you go. Among the things that Benji had to endure, a political opponent said of him in 1835 that Benji, quote, is a reptile, just fit now after being twice discarded by the people to become a conservative. His name shows that he's of Jewish origin. I do not use it as a term of reproach. There are many respectable Jews. But there are, as in every other people, some of the lowest and most disgusting grade of moral turpitude. And of those, I look upon Mr. Disraeli as the worst. He has just the qualities of the impenitent thief on the cross. I forgive Mr. Disraeli now. And as the lineal descendant of the blasphemous robber who ended his career beside the founder of the Christian faith, 
I leave the gentleman to the enjoyment of his infamous distinction in family honors. What a burn. I'm not sure I could have said it any better myself. So, before enduring that kind of treatment and becoming Prime Minister twice, Benji was an author, and that is where this tale intersects with Ozzy. The first novel Benji wrote was titled Vivian Grey. Just so it's clear, Vivian is actually the male protagonist. The novel, in short, is about a young man trying to navigate his way through the aristocratic world, and his attempts to make his mark on it. He wants money, he wants power, and eventually, he fails. He fails because his pursuit of money and power was very self-serving and the actions he took were ruthless and uncaring. In the end, he learns what he did was wrong and it serves as a lesson to himself and he continues on his journey. The book was published originally in 1826. It was published anonymously at first by a, quote, man of fashion. It was not until the 1850s that Benji was identified as the author. For one, the novel was a thinly veiled screed against what Benji saw going on in British society at the time, and he utilized actual people in his life in the novel. Kind of telling. Oh, and a number of... I don't know how to say the word. What? Solipsisms? 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 Is it solipsisms? Basically grammatical quirks that are unique to people. S-O-L-E-C-I-S-M-N. No, that's a new one. I learned a new vocabulary word today. I never heard that word. And a number of solsisms. Solsisms. Basically grammatical quirks unique to an individual littered the novel. And by the 1850s, being a politician who gave speeches, it was pretty clear what quirks Benji had when it came to speaking and writing and what made him unique. And so in 1853, the novel was edited and republished under his name. The picture Dorian Gray was published by Wilde 40 years later. Aside from the protagonist sharing the same last name, albeit one letter different. So where Dorian Gray being G-R-A-Y, Vivian Gray was G-R-E-Y. Dorian is just a way better first name than Vivian. Like, let's let's be real. Yeah, Viv. I like it. And both novels being the author's first novels. The love interest in Dorian Gray is a woman named Sybil Vane. Well, Sybil was the title of a different Benji novel, and the love interest in Vivian Gray has... The same last name, Fane. Fane instead of Vane? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and in Vivian Grey, when one of the main characters dies, their portrait changes. So, like... Oh, okay, wait a minute. The lead. Yeah, their last names are kind of the same, and then there's, like, another character who's like this. Oh, also, there's a magic painting in this one, too. So, like, while some people have suggested Ozzy may have been inspired by Benji, I think it's pretty fucking clear. This is not all some set of random occurrences, and it kind of makes sense. While the picture of Dorian Gray, in part, can serve as an homage and a shout-out to another author, I think it also goes much deeper than that. I think it's a big middle finger by Ozzy to everyone who threw shit at him for his nationality, his sexuality, or his general blue chininess, basically yelling back at them, yeah, well, you all shit on Benji too, and he was your fucking prime minister for six and a half years of his life. Get bent, assholes. Maybe Ozzy thought... He had what it would take to one day become prime minister. I wouldn't be shocked. I don't think he would ever want the job. You wouldn't think Donald Trump would have wanted it either, but here we are. Yeah, here we are indeed. I also think knowing this background does help paint some of the meaning behind the novel, the picture of Dorian Gray. But before we discuss the deeper blue china of the novel, we first must know what it's about. Megan? So, Picture of Dorian Gray was originally published in a serialized magazine format in 1890 and people were super scandalized by all the gay 
and Wilde and his editors were forced to... Oh, yeah, I'm covering this. Huh? I got this bit. Oh. I going to say that there are like three or four different versions of the novel kind of floating around. Yeah. And we can talk about that more later. Yeah. We're going with the original version. So it is a heavily... Um, well, it was, well, it was clearly inspired by this prime minister. It's also a uh, heavily Faustian-inspired story. The The story of Faust is... Uh, Poem? I don't know if I don't remember if it's a prose story or it's a poem. I think it's a poem by the the German poet Goethe. That I've read. Yeah. Oh, there you go. That one you've read. I also read. Wasn't it also a play? It was also a play. I yeah. read both. That's spelled G O E T H E. You're forgetting like an umlaut or something. There might be an umlaut also. It's Goethe, and it's a story where a guy sells his soul to the devil for. Is it just to be like awesome? Doesn't he bring someone back to life? Like, doesn't his daughter die? I feel like in the original poem, he just does it just for funsies. All right, now I'm looking it up. Hold All on. Right, fine. Yeah, the play is by Marlowe. Okay, well, I'm not talking about the play by Christopher Marlowe, who we've talked about on the show before, who was kind of a hack, just saying. I'm talking about the one by Gata. So he, he makes a pact with the devil, exchanging his soul for unlimited knowledge and worldly pleasures. There you go. So this is basically that, except that there's no visible devil man to, like, make a contract with. It's just someone kind of idly wishing for something out loud, and then the universe going like, Yeah, well, fuck you. You're gonna get what you want. It's gonna suck. This episode is brought to you, as always, by our- CBS. No, by our patrons. CBS doesn't give us shit. CBS cares. Maybe, but they don't care enough to give us money. So they give us entertainment. You make a uh, CBS joke later on in this episode. I, I do? Yeah, I know you don't remember. You make a joke about the Big Bang Theory. I do? Yes, and you spit on me too. Awesome. So yeah, it's brought to you by our wonderful patrons. As of this recording, we're up to 29 of them, which is crazy. So this is probably the last couple of times where I'm going to be able to read them all out. And then from there on, we're probably just, the new ones will get read. Bobby, Annie. No, none of those. Johnny. Nope. Timmy. Nope. Billy. No. Charlie. Goddamn, not a one. Danny. No. Georgie. Nope. Mikey. Nah. Nikki. Nope. Opie. Can, can, can we start with the, yeah. Zoni. No. Yoni. You're just making sounds now. Can I can, Pony. I, read, can I read the actual ones? Pony. You can read them. Amy. Wendy. Lonnie. At. You gotta do when they have the at next to them. That means we read their. Lonnie at. Lonnie on. Lonnie? Those are all the ones that end in E. Yeah. Or Kiki. This, that's true. Kiki also ends in E. Very good. We also have Aries, Cheryl, Camilla, Morgan. Samariel? Samariel? The second Sam didn't want to be the second Sam anymore. Wanted to differentiate themselves. Along with Pseudobred, Jared, Brandon, Florian, Sam T, Lucas, Sarah, Karen, Aaron. Uh, Did you say Katie? Katie. Yeah. (laughs) Dirk Dammit at Killing You Guy. Ben at KNSJM. Janet, Jen, Tanner. Not Alone Podcast at Not Alone Pod. Chris at Play Comics. Melina. Ariel at Ariel Teague and Alexander. Thank you guys. We love you. You're the best. You got anything you want to say? Gracias. There you go. Poor late dinero. <laughs> Jesus.
Yo soy muy happy. I bet you are. Ay, Dios mío. <laughs> okay. That's, that, that'll do it. I cannot believe that I have gone this long without mentioning this episode's pod pals, Chris and Steven, over at Is This Adulting. That, that's just, that's a crime. Because not, not only are they my good, good friends. Well, Steven is my good friend. I, I think Chris thinks I'm cool. You ever just sit there and you wonder, like, hmm, I wonder if they think I'm cool. A show about just two friendly dudes trying to make their way through this uh, crazy world called adulthood and the horrible things that it may contain therein, along with just doing really great, important conversations about mental health and trying to, you know, get rid of the stigma that surrounds openly talking about mental health problems. And I've been on their show and it was a delight and... They're both just delightful guys, and they they got a McElroy on their show, so that's how you know they're, like, fucking legit. I'm sorry, Steven. Please still stay friends with me. Hey, everybody, this is your best friend, Steven. And this is your best friend, Chris. And we're the hosts of the podcast, Is This Adulting? Every week, we sit down to talk about life, debate pointless topics, and most importantly, break the stigma on mental illness through opening up about our own struggles and how it affects us every day. Oh, and do you like games? We got those two. What about guests from all your favorite podcasts? Ooh, like Justin from Generation Y or Nina from Already Gone or Hal Lublin from everything. Uh, and of course, you can't forget our special guest, Tom Bodette from those Motel 6 commercials. Okay, that last one might have been a threat. Yeah, yeah, just like them. Uh, so join us each Thursday as we attempt to navigate adulthood as overgrown man children. And remember, kids, be happy, stay healthy, and go hug someone. Because you never know. They might just be the host of your new favorite podcast. So the story opens in the art studio of a man named Basil, where his friend Lord Henry Watton, which is a ridiculous name only fitting for an Oscar Wilde book, are admiring a fresh new painting of Basil's. It's of some gorgeously pretty boy. And when I say pretty, I mean like the old-style Renaissance painting kind of pretty boy. And uh, Henry's just like... Damn, like, that's a cute boy. This is probably your best painting ever. You should exhibit it. And Basil's like, oh, no, I could never. It's too personal. And Henry's like, what? And over the course of entirely too much of that good, good Oscar Wilde back and forth banter, that's pretty much just Henry picking on Basil, Basil admits that he's embarrassed by the painting because to him it looks super obvious that he's totally obsessed with the subject, a young Mr. Dorian Gray. Have you ever got an erection at a painting before? (laughs) I have. (laughs) No, I I can't say that I have. What painting gave you an erection? Whistler's Mother. (laughs) Okay, that's pretty good. That Mr. Bean movie was a very erotic experience for me. I think that Mr. Bean movie was a very erotic experience for everyone. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, no. Lord Henry definitely has a boner looking at this painting. But anyway, Basil's very upset that he just name-dropped Dorian because he wants to keep him to himself and not expose him to Lord Henry's influence. And we'll find out what that means later. Anyway, he talks about how he met Dorian at a party where Basil kept staring at him like, Oh my gosh, hot guy alert! And they got to talking. And uh, now Basil is basically in love with him. But he isn't sure that Dorian like, like likes him. So like, wow, right off the bat... It's pretty gay. 
I hey. can see why people were, were you know, like, oh, I don't know, Oscar was pretty right, good. Hey, guy, you come here often. It's, 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 nah, man, I'm just like. I'm fish like, for sale. <laughs> fish for sale. And that guy's everywhere. He's just at all the hot parties. <laughs> In hindsight, also knowing what's going to happen later, it's not just really gay, it's like really tragic and upsetting, but, you know, you'll see. Mm-hmm. Wait, Lord Henry's like, man, I'd sure like to meet this guy. And Basil's like, no, like, keep your dirty hands off him. He's mine. And then, right on cue, Basil's butler shows up and is just like, Dorian Gray to see you, sir. And Basil presumably does, like, that anime thing where he falls over and was just like, ah, crash. Are you sure it's Dorian? What, would it, what else would it be? Well, one the other guy could be Basil. Okay, I'm going off of Great Mouse Detective rules, where they call him Basil. And also... And, and Austin Powers, where he's Basil Exposition, and he's doing a British accent when they call him Basil, so that's why I think I'm correct here, because of Austin Powers and the Great Mouse Detective. Dorian. You're so full of shit. <laughs> yeah, Dorian Gray. Yeah. Well, if we go by the one in the movie, we're going to talk about this more in uh, adaptations. The one depiction of Dorian Gray that I've seen in media, the Leopard's Extraordinary Gentleman. Oh, yeah. They call him Dorian. Dorian. But more on that later. So, Dorian comes in, and he's come to sit for Basil to finish the painting. And Basil's all like, hey, it's my friend Lord Henry. He's kind of a prick and a bully and is going to give you very bad life advice. And don't listen to him, which begs the question of, like, why are these two men friends? It doesn't really seem to make sense, because Basil's like, Hi, Dorian, here's this guy. He represents everything that's wrong in the world, and, and don't listen to him, because he's going to tell you stuff. Why do they hang out? I've got friends in the places. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got friends uh, all walks of life. Some good, some bad, some in between. I, I guess so. Yep. Well, Lord Henry doesn't take it too personally, because he's too busy looking at Dorian and hearing... <laughs> Except that that might actually be like too pure for Lord Henry because he's kind of a freak, so he's probably hearing um. No, mine is better. <laughs> yeah, yours is better. Don't go chasing waterfalls. That doesn't make sense. Stick to the rivers and the streams that you're used to. The rivers and the lakes that you're used to. <laughs> Seriously, fuck up the body of water in question. I would rather fuck a river and stream than a lake. What's what's your problem with lakes? They're still water. That's where the brain slugs go and they grow. All right, you know what? That's a fair point. Yeah. You win this round. It might go up your penis. <laughs> you get smoke at your penis hole. <laughs> Anyway. Anyway, Dorian is just, he's so pretty. Just so pretty, but also pure and innocent. Like some kind of cherubic, cherubic puppy man. Like, just like some kind of gorgeous little wood nymph. And as Dorian sits for the painting, Lord Henry launches into this massive spiel about living for the hashtag aesthetic, and that people should live their lives as fully as possible, which... In his mind means giving in to all temptations all the time, always. 
for Lord Henry, every day is Treat Yourself Day. And he says to Dorian, presumably while winking and licking his lips, that even someone as clearly pure and innocent as Dorian has some kind of secret desires that he keeps locked away in his heart. Probably much on that ass. <laughs> Maybe he wants to be spanked and called a bad boy. Well, I didn't know how far we'd get into this episode before we bring up the obvious. Oh? He is Christian's grandfather. <laughs> Do you think this manifested just in the newest generation? It's like a Dracula thing. Like You could trace the lineage. Gray untold. Are you adding lore to Fifty Shades of Grey? The, the Fifty Shades of Grayverse? I'm not adding the lore. It's been there the whole time. Well, what do you think the odds are? There's only been so many literary characters with the last name Grey. Vivian Grey, what a freak. <laughs> it spills on over to Dorian Grey, which then spills on over to Christian. I think you're onto something here, yeah. <laughs> and right, and if you really take a step back and you think about this lineage here, you know, Disraeli having a face being Jewish... And people basically referring his family as the thief on the crucifix next to Jesus. It got to come full circle with Christian Grey. Oh, shit. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This has only been lost on idiots like Megan. The subtext of E.L. James was just lost on me. Yeah. (laughs) Thank thank goodness you're here. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, Lord Henry also tells Dorian that beauty is the most important thing in the world. And that Dorian should enjoy his youth and how unbelievably pants-screamingly hot he is to the absolute fullest. Because it won't be long until he gets old, sad, and ugly. The point is that Dorian is just, like, taking all this in, like, Wow, yes, this has rocked my little world and seems like good life advice to take entirely too much to heart. Basil finishes the painting and Dorian sees it and breaks down crying because, thanks to Lord Henry... He apparently, for the first time, understands just what a hot piece of ass he is, and that from this point forward, because, you know, time didn't end stuff, he'll never look as good as the painting. So he just fucking cries. And then, much like Tom Hanks in Big, he wishes that the painting would age instead and he would stay young and beautiful. Just like Big. Basil is like, Dorian, chill, like, it's okay. And Dorian's like, no, you only like me because I'm young and pretty and make for good paintings. And when I get the uglies, I'm just going to kill myself because he's so extra and just dramatic, which is going to be a running theme here. And Basil is like, Dorian, fucking chill. And Henry's like, no, Dorian, do not chill. Be as extra as you want to be. Also, fuck Basil, let's go to the theater. And they leave leaving Basil behind with the painting of Dorian in what was essentially his last moment of innocence. So Henry decides he's going to take Dorian under his wing because he really likes the idea of having a captive audience who's too dumb to know that Lord Henry is just an ass and is also really, really pretty. You also need someone under your wing every once in a while. Iceman needed, uh... Maverick needed Iceman. Maverick needed Iceman. (laughs) And another story where the young, beautiful Iceman died. Iceman's not the one who dies. Oh. Goose dies. Goose dies. Poor Goose. You know they're remaking... Or not they're remaking Top Gun. They're making a Top Gun 2. <laughs> yeah, and Goose's son's there. I, well, Val Kilmer's there, too. There you go. Now we were talking about. Because I forget who is playing Goose's son, but we talked about that. Uh, what's his face? Uh, drums. Drums? Drums. Miles Telly. Yeah, Miles Telly. <laughs> you know what I meant when I said drums? The drums. <laughs> J.K. Simmons is playing Goose's son. <laughs> Another another very pretty young boy who should have committed suicide before he got ugly. I'm saying that people should have committed suicide. You know what they say, Meg. 
you die a hero. If you live long enough to see yourself get ugly? Yep. <laughs> fast forward a month later. And... <laughs> yep, that's the fast forward noise. Sounds kids from 2018 just don't understand. <laughs> Only 90s kids know <laughs> fast forward sounds. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, that's what they sounded like. I always fast forward in my blockbuster movies to the end because I'm a jerk. Oh, you didn't. You were not kind, and you did not rewind. No, so I fast forwarded. What a fucker! All the way to the end. Eat that. I, I want them to get the tape home and build the anticipation like they got to sit through. Your painting, your your, your picture is you holding a VHS and looking like a dick. I actually, I used my dick to turn the little tape thing. <laughs> Yeah, I would put it on the end of my dick and I would just flip really the tape so around. What? There it goes. You know, it was ripped for my pleasure. <laughs> right around a crown. It was awesome. This is disgusting and terrible. So, we have fast forwarded, possibly through the use of RJ's dick, I don't know. A month later, Dorian is at Lord Henry's house, putting up with Henry's wife. Yeah, I know. Plot twist. Victoria. Hey, whoa, whoa. Wife could have a dick. Way to assume not. Okay, fine, fair. I, I don't think we're supposed to... Or maybe she puts a strap on on, takes him. Oh, Lord Henry would absolutely be pegged. Whatever. We're with his wife, Victoria, who's just so shrill and so shallow and just the worst. Eventually, Henry shows up and they leave and he's just like, Ugh, Dorian, never get married, you know? The old ball and chain, huh? And you stick to the cock and balls. <laughs> and Dorian's like, shut up, I don't care. I need to tell you that I'm in love. And Henry's like, excuse me? Who gave you permission? And Dorian details meeting a young actress named Sybil Vane. And how she's so pretty and great and smart. And Lord Henry's like, women can't be smart. And Dorian's like, shut up, I'm not done talking about how much I love her. Lord Henry's like, you're too young to understand love. More importantly, are you guys banging? That's the only part that he's interested in, is he wants to know if Dorian is, is fucking this girl. And Dorian's just like, ew, gross, stop it. Our love is pure and beautiful. And I go see all of her performances. And Henry's like, oh, that's why you haven't been paying enough attention to me. Because he demands constant attention and validation. And yeah, his wife is definitely the most obnoxious partner in this marriage, for sure. Afterwards... Henry reflects on the situation and how this isn't what he wanted when he decided to mold Dorian in his own image. Then he gets a telegram that says Dorian and Sybil are engaged. I'm sure this will end well for all involved. We learn that unlike Dorian and Lord Henry, Sybil and her family are poor, and her mother is totally down with this marriage because Dorian is a walking money bag. Sybil's brother James is much more suspicious of the whole situation and Dorian's intentions to make an honest woman of his sister. He's leaving for Australia to try and make his fortune, this says that if Dorian hurts Sybil, he'll come back to England and kick his ass. And his mom's like, hell yeah, I love the drama. And like, I'm not joking. That's that's essentially her reaction. And even though she wants her daughter to be happy in this marriage, she's just like, yes, son, talk more about how you're going to beat people up. It's weird. Anyway, Basil and Henry meet with Dorian for dinner. But before Dorian shows up, they have a heated argument about how Basil doesn't approve of this sudden engagement. But Henry's just like, yeah, it's fine. This is just a... A passing fancy. He'll marry her and love her and then get bored and move on with his life. And Basil's like, Henry, that that's worse. That's a worse thing. But then Dorian shows up 
and gushes about Sybil, winning Basil over to the fact that Dorian is truly in love with this girl, while Henry becomes all cynical, like, bah, women are dumb, you shouldn't be married, you should focus on life's hedonistic pleasures and the hashtag aesthetic. Never mind that Lord Henry is fucking married and a hypocrite. Yeah, fuck bitches get laid, man. He, he doesn't, he, he's married! He's full of shit! Dorian takes his two friends to see Sybil perform, and unlike all the other times Dorian has gone to see her, she's absolute garbage. Dorian's so upset, it starts crying, because that's what he does, and Basil's like, hey, you know, it's okay, maybe she just isn't feeling well or something, and Dorian's like, no, something terrible has happened to her, and he runs backstage to see her, and he's like, what, what the fuck was that? And Sybil's like, oh, Dorian, I will never act well again, and it's because I'm so in love with you. Before... Acting was my whole world, but now you're my whole world. To which Dorian responds, uh, actually, you embarrassed me in front of my friends, and it seems like I only loved you for your acting ability, because now I have absolutely zero interest in you. Goodbye forever. So that, that's that. And he gets home, and he looks at Basil's painting of himself, and is like, huh, is it just me, or does this painting look like I'm more of an asshole all of a sudden? And he gets worried that he suddenly looks like an asshole, even though it's a painting and not a fucking mirror, because I don't think he knows how surfaces work. Uh, then he looks in an actual mirror, and nah, he's still innocent looking, and fine as hell, and he remembers his Tom Hanks wish about the painting, and is like, oh shit, like, is it looking like a bastard because I'm becoming a bastard? And he draws a curtain over it, and vows to find Sybil in the morning and apologize. Except... Except the mint day... Except that the next day, Lord Henry shows up to tell Dorian that Sybil has killed herself. Will you still love me when I'm all young and beautiful? Wait, did you say, will you still love me when I'm all young and beautiful? <laughs> oh, she's gonna be young and beautiful forever. Well, oh, how'd she do it? She poisoned herself. Hmm. Well, it's it's meant to be like the, that. They saw her in the show. She was Juliet. They were they go and saw Romeo and Juliet. So the fact that she poisoned herself to death is like very hashtag aesthetic. Did she do it in the play? No. Oh. So yeah, Dorian is freaking out that that Sybil killed herself, and he's just like, "Oh my god!" And Lord Henry's like, "Oof, dodge that bullet, am I right?" And Dorian is reasonably upset at this reaction, and and Henry says, "You know, you never would have been happy with her anyway. You know, it never would have worked." And it's not like she ever truly lived. So, like, did she even die? Really? Do any of us ever really live? I don't know, man. And and while the reader is just like, you know, like, what the fuck, Lord Henry Dorian's like, hmm, yeah, you know, you might be onto something there. I probably shouldn't feel bad about this. And Henry leaves, and Dorian looks back at his portrait and is like, you know, I'm kind of curious to see how fucked up this painting is going to get. You know, as long as I stay all pretty and shit. So Basil comes over the next day to comfort Dorian, only to find that Dorian is not in need of comfort, and instead is just like, yeah, whatever, the past is the past. I mean, I can appreciate the aesthetic beauty of her tragic death, but other than that, I'm pretty much over it. And Basil's like, it, it, it happened yesterday. And then they get into a fight. Not about Sybil, because who gives a shit anymore, but how Basil wants to exhibit uh, his painting of Dorian after all, and Dorian freaks out and won't let him see it for obvious reasons, and chases Basil out of his house. Dorian then hides the painting away in a spare room, and we get a chapter that's kind of like a montage of years passing and Dorian remaining young and beautiful as terrible, mysterious rumors begin to surround him, and his painting starts to look more and more like a horrible little goblin man. 
And Dorian is really into this. He is morbidly fascinated with being able to look at this objective image of himself as a gross, terrible, don't forget old, person without having to deal with any visible proof of it on his own face. He kind of gets off on watching the portrait get more and more fucked up. He's become a model student of the Lord Henry School of being a decadent bastard that doesn't care about anything or anyone except being pretty and having a really good time. One night, Basil comes to see him before leaving England to go to Paris and says that he really needs to talk to Dorian about what a horrific little shit he's become and that he's ruined the lives of countless young women and men in ways that are just too terrible for Basil to think about and all of polite society either hates Dorian or is just kind of straight up freaked out by him. And Dorian's like, it's not my fault, it's society, man. And Basil sadly says that he thought before that he could see the truth in Dorian's soul, but he guesses he was wrong. And the sweet, sweet irony of that sentence is just too good for Dorian to ignore, and he's like, well, actually... And he takes Basil up to see the painting. Check it. Yeah. Yeah. He just stands up, pulls the curtain, and goes, check it. <laughs> Look upon my great work. Your your great works. Yeah. My great. Well, no, it's his now. I guess. It's remix. Remix. <laughs> it's the picture of Dorian Gray, the remix. <laughs> you gave me some shitty portrait. Look what I've done to the thing. <laughs> yeah, Basil sees it. He's like, what? In the sweet and spicy hell is that? And he sees his own signature on the painting. Oh, wait, here we go. So if the painting became, it started as a Matthew Good portrait. <laughs> yeah. It turned why, it up. Why Matthew Good? He's a pretty boy. I, yeah, I guess he's a pretty boy. You got someone better to just start it as? I, I don't know. I was having a hard time because I was looking, which we're going to talk about in adaptations of, of pretty boys who are boys who play Dorian Gray and none of them seem to fit that description of like the prettiest boy so I mean I guess Matthew Good is, is okay yeah <laughs> and then it became George Costanza <laughs> that's a hell of a transformation yeah look at what my sins have wrought <laughs> Jerry Jerry look what my sins have wrought <laughs> so Basil sees his own signature on the painting and he freaks out. Dorian is, is like, loving it. Like, it's pretty fucked up, right? But your mind is just, like, fucking melting right now, isn't it? I've learned to forge your signature, asshole. <laughs> mind freak. <laughs> mind freak, mind freak, mind freak, mind freak. <laughs> Basil is crying that Dorian is really a monster. And, and Dorian is crying that, like, fuck you, Basil. This is somehow your fault. And then he stabs Basil with a knife and kills him. Just, just apropos of nothing in particular. Now, at this point in the novel, as Dorian looks down in horror at what he has done, at this point, he might have what is known as a come-to-Jesus moment. Now, do you, do you know what that is? A great awakening. Yeah, kind of, well, yeah. Sort of a, a realization. More yeah, that's what awakening means. I, fine, fair enough. You, you step back, you take stock, you realize some difficult truths about yourself and uh, the bad things you may have done or that you're going down a bad road and then you make a point to change your ways. He began searching for the real killer. <laughs> Dorian does not have a come-to-Jesus moment so much as he has uh, what I would refer to as a come-to-Walter White moment. And do you want to know why it's a come-to-Walter White moment? Why? 
Because he blackmails some dude into dissolving Basil's body in acid for him. Yeah. It's what you gotta do. I know the perfect recipe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for Breaking Bad. <laughs> but in this case, Dorian doesn't even do it himself. He, he just finds a, this guy that he knows, his friend who's a, named Alan, who's like a quote-unquote scientist. And he blackmails him and he just goes to the room and the job is done. Like, problem dealt with. Um, and we never find out what the blackmail was, which drives me crazy. Because, like, it must have been some serious fucking dirt to just be like, hey, come to my house and dissolve this dude I killed with acid for me. That's some blackmail. <laughs> At a dinner party, Lord Henry is annoyed to find Dorian listless and unhappy. Like, hey, man, maybe pay some attention to me, huh? What you been so busy with lately? And Dorian's like, nothing. Definitely not murder. <laughs> I'm going to leave now. And he goes home, and he's still upset. So he decides to do some opium about it. And then he disguises himself and takes a mysterious trip across town to do some more opium and some seedy opium dens where he finds a bunch of miserable people that are all there because Dorian either made them miserable or got them addicted to opium. So that's fun. Then, out of nowhere, a sailor dude attacks him and shoves him up against a wall and puts a gun to his head. Screaming that he's going to kill Dorian for making Sybil Vane kill herself. It's James Vane! Out for revenge, having found Dorian by chance. However, Dorian manages to think fast and is like, Um, I don't know what you're talking about, but how long ago did your sister die? And James says, 18 years ago. And Dorian is like, uh, look at this gorgeous young face full of sexy, youthful vitality. I was obviously in diapers 18 years ago. And James is like, shit, true though. Which is like, you wonder why he attacked him in the first place. Like, that looks like that guy who, like, broke my sister's heart. But that was almost 20 years ago. And and so he leaves him alone as he's walking away. This beggar lady who was in the opium den who watched this all go down is like, Hey, so why didn't you kill that guy, though? And James replies that he's too young to be the man he was looking for. And she's like, nah, he ruined my life almost 20 years ago. He He just looks like that. And James is just like, well, shit. Damn. Damn. That okay. guy gonna get away. <laughs> I dropped the ball. <laughs> I'm James Vane. James Vane. Oh, darn it. My grandpappy <laughs> was Weather Vane. Oh, God. Oh, no, no, that was not his name. Weather Vane. I know God. At yet another fucking aristocrat party, Dorian is hanging out with Lord Henry and other rich douchebags while talking about hashtag aesthetics when Dorian thinks he sees James Vane outside through a window and collapses in fear like a little bitch. Dorian is so freaked that he refuses to leave the house until Lord Henry and co. drag him out to go hunting and one of these rich idiots actually manages to kill something. But it's not an animal, it's a dude. Oh, man, is the most dangerous game. It's true. I don't think they were intentionally hunting man. So Dorian's horrified, but Lord Henry's just like, hey, man, it's the dead dude's fault for chilling in the woods when people are shooting guns and shit. And then Dorian discovers that the murdered man is James Vane, and he's like, oh, okay, well, that, that makes my life easier. I don't care anymore. So Dorian's chilling at Lord Henry sometime later, and he swears that he's going to be a good boy from here on out after this whole situation with the veins has been dealt with and everything. And Henry's like, gross, that sounds boring. You're perfect, Dorian. Don't ever change, baby. And they talk about how no one's heard from Basil in a long time. And Lord Henry doesn't really care. And Dorian's like, but what if Basil was murdered? And Henry responds, 
end I quote, that Basil isn't interesting enough to be murdered. Like, what the fuck? He's just the worst guy. And Dorian's like, okay, but what if hypothetically I had murdered Basil? And Henry's just like, well, Dorian, you're so silly. Only poor people commit crimes. And Dorian leaves. Dorian gets home and wonders if maybe just thinking about the fact that he wants to be a good person now will have changed the portrait at all for the better. And he looks at it to find that actually it's even worse. Because he doesn't really want to change. He's just guilty and afraid of getting caught for all the bad shit he's done. And again, Dorian has a choice to make. He considers confessing to all of his crimes. But he decides, fuck that, and to destroy the painting as the last piece of evidence. Because he's so fucking extra. He slashes the painting with the same knife he used to kill Basil. Suddenly, at the other end of the house, the servants hear a terrible scream and a crash. They run into the room to find a horrible, mangled corpse on the ground underneath a portrait of what they recognize as the beautiful, eternally youthful Dorian Gray. The end. So who's the body? It's also Dorian. I don't think so. No, it's... He says withered and old. Yeah, yeah. He's young like Matthew Good. They... He, he killed somebody with that portrait. Somebody <laughs> saw what he was doing and he murdered that man he knew too much. Yeah. And then he ran. I mean, they do say, I, I didn't say it just now because I was kind of summing up, but they are like looking at the body and they're like, who's this old gross man? And they see he's got a ring on his finger and it's Dorian's ring. He planted it on him. Ah. The perfect crime. So Dorian's still out there somewhere. Maybe Dorian is Christian. Oh, shit. There you go. He it, broke good. <laughs> You're popping this, this case wide open. Yeah. That explains the scars on his body. It does. Wait, it does? Oh, yeah, because he cut the painting until he cut himself. Ah. That's why he stopped cutting it. Instead, he just threw the painting on the ground on top of some old fart. Oh, okay, but how do you explain the fact that he has, like, a family and siblings in, in Fifty Shades of Grey? They adopted him. They adopted a grown man in his 20s? Isn't he adopted? He was a child when they adopted him. He had Jack disease. <laughs> that can't be your answer to everything. Yeah, first he had Jack disease, they had Benjamin Button disease. And they were just kind of cool with it. Why does he look so old when he's nine? I don't know. Why has he stopped aging? Well, bunch of a button. Brad Pitt rules. Brad Pitt rules. Yep. Well, first Robin Williams rules give way to Brad Pitt rules. No rules, just right. Yeah. He has that, like, Dorian Gray disease. Go figure, huh? <laughs> or he just doesn't age. <laughs> oh, now he's, now he's Christian Gray. Yes, mommy. <laughs> just watch his picture. Walking around on his knees, <laughs> pretending to be a small child. Yep. <laughs> and everybody just goes along with it for some reason. Can we get a Fifty Shades of Grey prequel, but with the same actor who plays Christian Grey, playing child Christian Grey? <laughs> Young Christian. Young Christian. This season on CBS... America's most watched network. Watch Young Sheldon <laughs> and Young Christian. Shit. Wait for the crossover. Look at you pull, pulling out a deep cut joke. Is Young Sheldon on CBS? Why wouldn't it be? I don't know. The Big Bang Theory is. Oh, okay. I didn't know the Big Bang. Wait, Big, big, big Bang. bang <laughs> <laughs> the Bada Big Bada Boom Theory is on CBS. Hey, because of Vinny. <laughs> hey, I'm 
<laughs> I actually watched that. The Big Bang Theory starring Joe Pesci. I'd watch the fuck out of that. Yeah. Alright, so now we heard about the book. As Megan alluded to earlier, the novel was published multiple times. So originally it was published in 1890 in Lippincott's Monthly Magazine. So given the plot and subject matter that we've now heard, you could understand why editors were kind of concerned about the reaction the text would receive from the public. So without Ozzy's knowledge or consent, about two pages worth of material was removed from the manuscript before it was even printed originally. And shocker, despite the removal of the supposedly offending material, there were a number of people who still got their jimmies all rustled up and wanted to see Ozzy get prosecuted for infringing on England's very fragile morality. Ozzy thought this was stupid and furiously defended his work. I mean, it's it's a novel about how all of that shit is bad. However, before publishing the work in the novel format, the next year, he did edit some of the offending passages and did lengthen the work to a proper novel length. The novel, published in 1891, starts off with a preface that defends art for art's sake and defends an artist's rights. So now Dorian exists in three formats. The original manuscript, without edits, submitted to Lippincott's magazine. What Lippincott actually published, those first two versions being 13 chapters long, and the full-length novel, which is 20 chapters long. As for what was specifically changed, you could probably guess. Originally, Basil was very clear in his lust for Dorian. Specifically, he tells Lord Henry how he worships Dorian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there are other such overtures, as we've heard, but those were changed from Basil lusting on Dorian to Basil loving and lusting after any kind of good art. In short, he gave up focusing on the D for some nice brushstrokes instead. That's such bullshit. <laughs> and that joke works on two levels. Dick and Dorian. Yes, yep. it, it, they worked before you said that. Mm. As for what was added to the novel, well, the original manuscript was missing the good old Victorian socio-economic struggle. The character of James Vane was mostly completely missing from the original, and there was not really any discussion as to Sybil's background, so those seven extra chapters, class warfare, that'll make the British public like this thing all the more. And I guess it worked. People love Dickens and he talks about the poors all the time. And as Megan contends, this is the best thing that Ozzy's known for. I don't know if it's the best thing he made. It's the thing that he's probably most well known for. So do you want to hear some of the things that uh, people thought were just so tantalizing and needed to be changed or removed. Oh, absolutely. So Basil is described at one point as rugged and straightforward as he was. There was something in his nature that was purely feminine in its tenderness. Mm, can't have that. Can't have any feminine tender men. Basil says to Dorian, quote, It is quite true that I have worshipped you with far more romance of feeling than a man usually gives to a friend. Somehow, I had never loved a woman. I suppose I never had time. Perhaps, as Harry says, a really grand passion is the privilege of those who have nothing to do, and that is the use of the idle classes in a country. So Basil seems to be the offending uh, party for a lot of this, huh? Basil says about Dorian, he has stood as Paris in dainty armor, and as Adonis with huntsman's cloak and polished boar spear, crowned with heavy lotus blossoms, he has sat on the pro of Adrian's barge, 
looking into the green, turbid Nile. He has leaned over the still pool of some Greek woodland and seen in the water silence silver the wonder of his own beauty. So he's every Greek myth, but specifically Narcissus. Yes. Why not have to get cut? That's a good bit. Too gay. That too gay? Yep. I suppose. I guess the Greeks are pretty gay. That's all I got. All right. It's pretty good. Take a, take a brief tour into different adaptations. So there have been a bunch of different film adaptations of The Picture of Dorian Gray, and I have not seen them. I have seen the uh, 2003 film League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which has Dorian Gray, and it's hilariously terrible. He's like a weird, vaguely sexy acting, very much grown man who honestly looks more like the painting is supposed to, like an over-sexed, stoned, hungover kind of rock star look. He's played by Stuart Townsend, uh, a.k.a. Lestat Part 2, the sequel, a role that he was honestly much better suited for. And in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which, again, just a fabulously stupid movie that I don't know how much of you remember that you saw for the first time however many months ago. Yeah, good movie. Yeah? Yeah, they're on the submarine. They are on the submarine. Yeah. So, uh, instead of just being beautiful and ageless, Dorian's painting makes him invulnerable, and he regenerates after being peppered full of bullets. And also, apparently, his suit regenerates, too, because all the bullet holes are gone by the next scene, but I'm not sure if that's, like, a, a power related to the painting or just a fun continuity error. He's also been portrayed as a character in the HBO show Penny Dreadful, which I watched about three episodes of and then got too spooked during a seance scene. There was also a movie just called Dorian Gray in 2009 that we tried to watch. We couldn't find it. I want to see it, even though it was panned pretty hard. It stars uh, Ben Barnes as Dorian, which is kind of weird casting because, like, Ben Barnes is hot, but he's, he's not, like, pretty. Definitely not in, like, the weird, androgynous, wood-nymph way that Dorian is supposed to be pretty, but that's not the weirdest casting choice by far, because you know who plays the dark and immoral Captain Hashtag Aesthetic Lord Henry? James Earl Jones. No, <laughs> James Earl Jones. Tom Cruise. No. Jackie Earl Haley. That'd be pretty funny. Uh, no, it's fucking Colin Firth. Colin Farrell? No, no, that would make a little more sense. I mean, Colin Firth, circa 2009. So, post-Mamma Mia, Colin Firth. <laughs> That's not a man who tempts an impressionable lad into a dark life of debauchery. The worst thing Colin Firth would lead you into is, like, a cozy bed and a good book that he just got done reading that he thinks you would really like. But then again, he was in Mamma Mia, too, so who knows. And that brings us to this uh, part of the show. Hey, RJ. What's up, bruh? The picture of Dorian Gray. What's up? Good or bad? Well, I found it very instructional, you see. Oh, no. When I found out about this book in grad school, I I made a pact with the devil. (laughs) Excuse me? Where Dorian is a weak little Nancy of a man. I don't care what the painting winds up looking like. You've clearly aged since grad school, though. Acting. I can't let people know. Then what's the point? Well, when you die, I'll just take the makeup back off, and it's like living anew. (laughs) That seems needlessly complicated. Why would I get tired of you? Wow. This book's very instructional what to do when that happens also. You're an asshole.
asshole. Hey, Meg. Fuck you. Hey, Megan. Yeah, The picture of Dorian Gray, grandfather of Christian Gray. <laughs> Your take. It's fine. It's a perfectly fine novel. Um, I cut out in my summary a good hefty chunk of discussion between Dorian and Lord Henry and various other sundry characters about aesthetics and how you're supposed to live your life and hedonism and Greek philosophy and, and just kind of like thought experiment shit that's honestly kind of boring and gets in the way of all of the sex and magic painting bullshit. You know, the fun stuff. Which, you know, it, it kind of slows the, the novel down at some points because it's like, you know, things are happening and then Lord Henry comes in and he's like, who wants to hear a really long monologue about fucking hedonistic lifestyles and why they're great? And everybody's just like, well, I guess we do, even though we don't like Lord Henry and we're not supposed to like Lord Henry. Like, Lord Henry is unequivocally a fucker. But we have to listen to him for such a huge section of the book that it kind of wears on you. So, it's, it's, it's okay. Um, the importance of being earnest is a lot more fun. I'm not trying to cram a moral down my throat in the same obvious way. It's trying to cram a dick down your throat. Oh, that I have less of a problem with. I guess. So, it's good. It's a good book. Yeah. Ozzy, you stick it to the man. Stick that dick right to the man. I mean, I like the idea, I like the, the concept of being able to see your sins made manifest objectively in something that's, like, separate from yourself. That is really interesting, and I like that that visual. That'll about do it for us on this episode of Ono Lit Class. If you like the show and want to keep us young, youthful, and full of vitality, then you can subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a rating and a review, which we would like very much. You can follow us on Twitter at OwnTheLitClassPod. You can like us on Facebook. You can join our Facebook group and do some Oscar Wilde memes. You can pledge to us on Patreon and get access to our bonus study break episodes. You can vote on what episodes we do next. You can get stickers, posters, t-shirts, all kinds of good shit just lying in wait for you. And that's at patreon.com slash class. We are part of the Brain Trust Network. And that that's where we are. Along with other shows like Play Comics, Field of Screams, There Might Be Cupcakes, and Life, Death, and Taxonomy. And then you can check us out and all those other shows by going to braintrust.fm. Thank you, as always, to Best Day for the use of our intro song and if you like his music you can check out more of it at soundcloud.com slash best dash day and if you just like him as a person you can listen to the previous two episodes where he comes on and talks about hp lovecraft the next episode will be on september 13th until then i'm megan i'm rj we love you bye I'm the first Jewish podcaster. That is, yep. Um, no, no one has ever been a Jewish, Jewish and a podcaster before you. I'm breaking the religious barrier. See, a lot of people think Ira Glass is Jewish, and he's not. That did blow my mind, to be honest. Like, I was genuinely surprised because 
He sounds he sounds Jewish, although that might just be like a just a New York thing. But his name is Ira Glass. Like that's such a Jewish name. Yeah, so I'm the Ira Glass. That's real. RJ Glass. <laughs> yeah. We're through the looking glass. Yeah, we're through something. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Brain Trust Brothers Network. For more information about this podcast or others, visit Braintrustbros.com.